Mark chapter 10, today we'll look at a very familiar passage, the rich young ruler and his conversation with Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse number 17, now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Precious God, we thank you so much for, for your word. We thank you for this wonderful passage. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit and help me to be clear with it now. Uh, clear my mind. Help me to concentrate on, on what you've laid on my heart. Help me to say things I ought to and say nothing I ought not. Give us all ears to hear today, Father. Fill us with your spirit that we might receive your word and uh, be changed by it. And we pray, especially, Lord, if there's any who like this, uh, this rich young ruler who Uh, currently are wondering what they must do in order to be saved. I pray that this would be the day they'd understand. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text this morning is that very first verse. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And right before we get started here, we need to recognize that this passage really needs to be contrasted with what we looked at the last time in just the last few verses. Uh, In the previous passage, in verse number 15, he had made a very sobering statement, and we talked about it a week or so ago. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. That was a very uh, serious statement that Jesus made. And what he was saying, in other words, was, unless your approach is helpless and complete dependence on God and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you will never enter heaven. That's what he said there. If you are trusting in yourself and your good works, you will never enter heaven. If you are uh, not helplessly and wholly trusting in something or someone outside of yourself, and that someone, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never enter heaven. If you are trusting in anything, anything, anything other than Christ, 
Jesus said there, you will never enter heaven. Those are sobering words. And we need to look at what we're looking at here today in light of that, because almost immediately thereafter now we come to this section here, verse number 17, where we read that as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him. This story appears in all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if we compare the details from all three of the Gospels, we find that uh, this was person that came running was, first of all, a man. He was uh, young. He was somebody who apparently had influence. Luke tells us, I believe, that he was a ruler of some sort and that he was quite wealthy. So just after Jesus' pronouncement in verse number 15, we find him speaking with this young man who was, frankly, the antithesis of everything he had just described in verse number 15. He was the antithesis of helpless helpless dependence. He was rich, and he was one who trusted in his riches. He was young, and probably, therefore, still at that point in his life where he believed himself invincible and able to power through any problem that might come his way. He was influential, a ruler of some sort. He had probably surrounded himself with people who bolstered his self-love by fawning over him with respect and admiration. He was a perfect example of someone who trusted in themselves, trusted in what they had, trusted in what they were trusted in their own abilities and resources. So that's the man who came. And this young man came to Jesus and asked a question. And it is that question that provides the context for everything else that we read in those following verses. The question, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, there are several questions in this passage, and there are some answers in this passage. So we're going to start off by looking at a couple of the questions, and then we'll move to the answers. And that's how we'll divide it up this morning. Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? In his question, he betrayed a fundamental misconception, didn't he? And there's a common misconception about what it takes to be right with a holy God. He thought that some task or some good thing, as a matter of fact, if you read Matthew's account, Matthew worded the question as, good teacher, what good thing must I do in order to inherit eternal life? He thought that some good thing uh, could be done in order for him to ensure eternal life for himself. I'm reminded of a scene from a, uh, a movie. It was uh, Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibilities. I recall a particular scene in there, uh, which has always, always struck me. I've never forgotten this particular sentence, just one line. But uh, one of the heroines was lying sick dying on her sickbed, and her suitor was outside the door just frantic with worry. And her sister come walking down the hall, and he was pacing back and forth and just very out of his mind. And She said something to him, and he said, Give me an occupation, or I shall go mad. Give me something to do. Isn't that what most of us, well, maybe not most of us, but isn't that what most people think is necessary in order to please God? Give me Something to do. Some good thing that I can do. Many, if not all of the other religions of the world teach this. Many of them believe that we need to uh, do something good, engage in good works in order to earn a place in heaven. Many, even who claim to be biblical Christians, have a little of that still in them. Uh, I like to call that scales theology. They have a little of that in them. You know what that is? That's where you you believe that when you get to heaven one of these days, God's going to take all your good works and all your bad works and put them on a scale. Good works on one side, bad works on the other. 
And as long as the good outweighs the bad, you're in. I can't tell you how many biblical Christians, Christians that have sat in good Bible-believing churches, still have a little bit of that in them. Because it's what a lot of us just tend to lean toward. That's what Islam teaches, by the way, and most other uh, faiths would teach this. I need to do something good in order to ensure my salvation. What good thing shall I do, he said, that I might inherit eternal life? And so Jesus hears the question, and Jesus responded in kind of an odd way. He, he responded with another question in verse number 18. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. It's an interesting response, don't you think? He asked him what he should do, and he says, why do you call me good? And I think I can think of a couple of different ways we might interpret that question. I think one way is that he was, he was pointing to that fallacy that we've just been describing, this fallacy in the young man's thinking, and pointing out to him that no human, no member of the human race is good. And he says that plainly, doesn't he? No one is good. No one is good. There's no good work you've got to do because no one is good. And we know from the time of the fall when sin entered into the, uh, the human race, none of us have been good. Paul described that in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. And also in Romans chapter 3, he said, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. That's pretty clear, isn't it? No, not one. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't do good things from time to time. A lot of people do good things. Whether they're saved or lost, a lot of people do good things. Some people do a lot of good things. I recently had somebody do a good thing for me. I was reminded of this as I was sitting there uh, pulling my tithe check out of my wallet just a minute ago. Uh, this this past week, Kathy and I went down to Rockney's in Canton and had dinner. Had a nice dinner. Came home, sitting in my favorite chair in my living room, and my phone rings, my house phone. For those of you who know me know that I almost never answer my house phone because it's usually going to be somebody like Heather from Card Services or some nonsense like that. It's, it's 99% of the time a telemarketer. So I don't answer it. I sit there and I listen. And if it's one of you, I will jump up and answer the phone. Or something else important. In this case, it was somebody saying, uh, is there a William Johnson there? My name is so-and-so. I'm the manager of Rockneys at North Canyon. I was jumping up and running to the phone. And I picked up the phone and she said, uh, somebody found a wallet in the parking lot. And I said, I'll be down. So I went down, of course, I looked all through the thing, and I said, how did you find it? And they said, uh, a customer turned it in. Now, normally I have, you know, just lots and lots of money in my wallet, so I looked there real quickly to see. That's, that's not true. But I do have credit cards in there, and I looked for those, and they were there, and nothing had been taken, and so I thanked them. And she said, you know, the way I found you was uh, there's a check in there, and it has your phone number on it. And it was my time check. So there's just another reason for you to put your, uh, to, to give your giving to the Lord because you might, it might be used to get your wallet back for you someday. But anyway, somebody did something good and I was thankful. People do good things. But that does not change the fact that none of us are truly good. We are sinners all. That is absolutely clear in scripture. So that's one thing Jesus might have been saying here when he said, why do you call me good? There is none good. Another way, perhaps, to interpret what Jesus was saying there is this. It might have been him declaring who he is. The young man called him good, and he reminded the young man that only God is good. So we might paraphrase Jesus' words. He might have been doing this. He might have been saying something like this. What are you saying? Don't you know that calling me good 
is calling me God. It's possible. It's possible. Either way we interpret that, Jesus then went on to answer the young man's question. And his answer was just as interesting as his question. He said, you know the commandments, verse number 19. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. You know the commandments. Now here's the question, what good thing must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer is, obey the commandments. And some of us, when we read that, a little red flag goes up in our brain, doesn't it? Sirens start to sound in our brain. Wait a minute. Jesus, are you saying to this young man, are you telling him that keeping the commandments, that doing good works can save him? Because we know that can't be the case. Because the Bible says over and over and over again that such is not possible. None can be saved by trying to keep the law. We know that, right? Somebody say amen to that. None can be saved by trying to keep the law. Paul told the Galatians, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 2 says the same thing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The law does not save us. Jesus could not possibly have been saying that to this young man. The law does not save us. But the law does show us we need to be saved. One man said, the law is a mirror that shows us how dirty we are. But the mirror cannot wash us. One purpose of the law is to bring the sinner to Christ. Galatians 3.24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. That's exactly what happened to this man's case. The law can bring the sinner to Christ. But the law cannot make the sinner like Christ. Only grace can do that. So Jesus was not telling him that he needed to keep the law in order to be saved. Rather, he was getting him to think about the law so that he would see his need to be saved. Now, Jesus only mentioned a few of the Ten Commandments there. Did you notice that? And I think it's interesting that he mentioned the ones that, or some of the ones anyway, that we might think the easiest to obey. The ones that deal with our relationships with each other, with other people. Oftentimes when you're talking to somebody about, about Christianity, about Christ, and trying to encourage them to come to Christ, they'll say something like, well, I'm just as good as the next person. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anybody. I don't, I don't steal. I'm not a liar. And those are the kinds of things he was laying before this young man. The young man heard that list and he said, yeah. He said, I, I, I'm good. I've kept all those things from the time of my youth. And from that he probably meant from his bar mitzvah when he was 12 and, and uh, was declared a man. But Jesus wasn't done. There are more commands than that in the list. And uh, so he continued. And he told the young man something else interesting. He said, you need to leave everything and follow me. Verse number 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have. And give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. Now, before we get to the actual answer he gave there, let's notice two wonderful truths that come out about Jesus in verse number 21. I, we would be tempted to gloss them over, but we can't. They're just too important. Notice that Mark describes Jesus looking at him. Every word in the Bible is important, you know. Jesus looking at him. Looking at him. And the word that is used there indicates that Jesus looked at him hard. 
with a penetrating gaze. That Jesus could see through the veneer of the outer declarations he was making of his self-righteousness. He saw him. He saw him for what he was. He saw right through him. He knew his heart. (laughs) My friend, if we were to just talk about that for a while, that's a wonderful thought for us to consider. No matter who you are and what you think others see about you, there is one who sees you. There is one who knows exactly who you are and what you are. Jesus sees your heart. Jesus sees the real you. You cannot hide from the Lord. Jesus looking at him. But then he not only saw him, he also loved him, Mark said. And of the three Gospels, Mark's the only one who mentions that. He loved him. And what a beautiful truth that is. Here's this person who is so self-righteous, and yet Jesus loved him. I don't know about you, but it warms my heart to think about the fact that in spite of my frailty, in spite of my thick-headed self-righteousness, sometimes Jesus still loves me, and Jesus still loves you. He loved this young man in spite of what can only be called arrogance and self-righteous pride, and yet he loved him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. There's a little chorus that says, Oh, the love of Jesus, oh, the love of Jesus, oh, the love of Jesus, it is enough for me. Well, but then Jesus did answer him, and he told him something was lacking. One thing you lack, he said in verse number 21, and he told him to go and give away all his possessions and come and follow Jesus. Interesting. You see, Jesus, who could see what was beneath this young man's carefully polished exterior, knew that his claims to obedience notwithstanding, there were a few commandments he was not obeying. He was having pretty much trouble with number one, wasn't he? He was struggling a little bit with the fact that there's only one God that we're to have on the throne of our life. There's only one that we're to worship. That's the first commandment. None of us can keep it, and neither could he. He was struggling pretty good with number 10, too. The commandment against coveting. The commandment against desiring things and possessions. And so he pointed out a couple of things in his life. He was making the point to this young man that what God requires is simply this, unrivaled allegiance. God wants uh, him to be on the throne and nothing else. Nothing can take the place of God in our lives if we're, being a, if we're to be in a right relationship with him. And there was something in this young man's life, on the throne of his life, that was keeping him from God. And in his case, it was the love of money. Now, a lot of times we read this passage and we think that, God, that, that Jesus is really talking about money here. And we, we could talk about money from this passage. There's a lot of truth here. It's not the main point, though. Jesus was not here saying that money is bad in and of itself. Nor was he declaring that all of us must give up all that we have uh, to give to others. He wasn't condemning wealth in general. What he was doing was pointing out that in this young man's case, wealth was the thing that was keeping him from heaven. In this man's case, his wealth and self-reliance kept him from trusting Christ. And he needed to trust Christ completely. And if that meant giving all those things away, then he needed to do that. Giving away all our possessions is not something that applies to all Christians. But trusting Christ completely and putting him on the throne of our life totally, him and him alone being the one that we worship and serve, living lives of unrivaled allegiance to him, that does apply to all of us. And that is true of all of us. So I wonder, what is it? 
that might stand between you and completely and totally surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ. The application here is whatever it is, you need to walk away from it. Whatever it is, you need to say no to it. That's what Jesus was saying to him. He was saying your wealth, your self-reliance is keeping you from salvation. Walk away from that and follow One man said, Jesus always demands that those who come to him put away their gods, whether they be possessions, position, power, a person, or a passion. So what was the result? This young man asked the question. He heard the answer. What was the result? The result was that this young man who had come running and zealously seeking to know the way to heaven from the Savior walked away. And he walked away lost. Because he was unwilling to give up that which he loved the most. It was Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary, who wrote in his diary, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And this young man clung to something he would soon lose forever. And in so doing, he lost the true riches that would have lasted forever. Now, the disciples have been privy to this whole conversation. And now Jesus turned to them, and he said some amazing things to them. As this young man walked away, Jesus turns, he talks to the disciples, and he said in verse number 24, How hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And verse 26 says they were astonished. Astonished. That's a very strong word. They were out of their mind with astonishment, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And they were astonished because in their culture and in their day, uh, I think even in our day today, actually. Wealth was seen as a sign of God's favor. People thought if somebody had wealth, it was was because God was blessing them. And so they thought to themselves, if one so favored by God as this person cannot be saved, who then can be saved? Jesus, in this passage, uttered one of those things that is sometimes referred to as one of his hard sayings in verse number 25. And they were just utterly perplexed by it. That hard saying is where he says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Let me pause right here and say that when Jesus used the word camel, he meant camel. And when Jesus used the word needle, he meant needle. Just like any other needle. You might have read other commentaries. You might have read other people who would say, you might have heard other preachers say that uh, the needle was not really a needle. The needle was really just a little low doorway that the camel had to kneel down on to get through. That's, that's a, a way that people interpret this passage. It's not necessary to do those kind of gymnastics with the Word of God. Jesus said needle. He meant needle. He was not trying to describe something that was difficult here. He was trying to describe something that was impossible. It's difficult for a camel to get down and go through a little narrow doorway. It's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle that's about that big. The illustration was of an impossibility because he was trying to illustrate something that is impossible, an impossible situation, which was for someone who was trusting, in this case in riches, someone who was trusting in that to ever enter heaven. The specific case at hand concerned a young man who was trusting in riches, but money was not the real issue. The real issue was self-reliance. The real issue... Jesus was describing was the impossibility of someone who trusts in themselves, trusts in their wealth, trusts in anything other than God alone, ever reaching heaven. It's not possible, he said. And that astonished the disciples. But then I think some of the best words that he ever spoke came from his lips in verse number 27 when he said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. 
God, all things are possible. There was a poet in the 18th century. His name was James Montgomery, and he wrote these words. He said, with men impossible, what hope remains for me, a sinner on the verge of hell? How, whither shall I flee? The Lord can make a worm almighty if he please, and at his single word perform impossibilities. When to the blind man's eyes he saith, behold, tis so. And when he calls the dead, they rise, though the grave's mouth cries, no. Then, my Redeemer, then from wrath to love I flee. The things impossible to men are possible with thee. I at thy feet in dust my unbelief resign. In thee alone is all my trust. Lord, save me, I am thine. You see, God made a way. God made a way. Even though my unrighteousness made it impossible for me to enter heaven, he gave me Jesus' righteousness as a free gift. On the cross, Jesus took my sin, gave me his goodness in his place. My sin, which was totally, a totally impossible problem for me to solve, he solved. Because nothing is impossible for God. Well, of the young man in uh, chapter 10 and verse number 17, Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, of all the people who ever came to the feet of Jesus, this man is the only one who went away worse than he came. And why is that? Because he would not give everything to God. Because he wanted to hold on to this world. Because he had something else on the throne of his life in place of God. And so what about you this morning? If you, like this young man, are still wondering what to do in order to obtain eternal life, you need to hear what Jesus says. Whatever you're trusting in and believing in him, other than him, toss it away. And kneel at the cross. Christ will meet you there. And he will save your soul. And the reward for following Jesus. Many in this room have been following Jesus for a long time. The reward for following Jesus, even if it means giving things up, making sacrifices in this life. The reward, notice the glorious promise Jesus made in the final verses of the passage. Look at verse number 29. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Rewarded in eternity. Rewarded for eternity and rewarded a hundredfold even now in this life. Great is the reward when we give up all and follow Jesus.